We love you guys. I want to tell you, uh, I was thinking today about how far back we go. There are three churches that started supporting Dottie and I 25 years ago, and you're one of those three churches. And uh, so we're we're so grateful. We're just we're in love with Lafayette. We're in love with you. We're in love with what the ministry has meant over all of these years, all the way back to the teaching center, and you know, and and up through what God has done through so many other ministers at that time, and and especially what He's done here. So we're we're very grateful. Those of you that have, that have watched us over the years, this is Bubba. Bubba is in the middle, and that's his wife. Uh, Sandra, and, and they're both in college now and both working. And that's their son, that's Anthony. Uh, he was named after the little boy that passed away from kidney failure. And uh, three weeks ago, they called us and, and told us at first that he had leukemia. And uh, we had people praying all across the nation. And a week later, he went back for a bone marrow test, and it wasn't leukemia. Uh, there were some other things they found, and tomorrow he's having an EKG. And uh, so I would appreciate very much if you would write his name down and remember his name is Anthony and pray for him and just bless him. This is him. He sent me a picture, Don. He sent me this picture after the after the bone marrow, and uh, he's just like his father. They're both about the same IQ, and you can you can tell that from looking at him. Many of you don't know us. We left... About many years ago, uh, 25 years we've been in Guatemala, but 11 years prior to that, uh, we had been in Lake Charles. And so I want to give you a quick rundown because God's never finished with people. God never finishes with us. And for those of you that think you're at the end or that you've reached your maximum, hang on to what God is willing to do in your life if you're willing to obey, if you're willing to listen to God. I was born in the metropolis of Bunky, Louisiana, and raised there. And uh, I was I was raised in a family of an alcoholic. And uh, my older brother became an alcoholic and committed suicide. My younger brother became an alcoholic and died from a heroin overdose. I hated alcohol, even though I wasn't a Christian. I hated it with all my heart. And so I had a friend there that we pushed each other as hard as we could academically and athletically so that we could both leave home and go to college, get away from the alcohol. I was very, very fortunate to be given a scholarship to the University of Tennessee. It was one of my dreams to play ball there. But in my senior year, after accepting the, the scholarship in my senior year, my father came down with advanced diabetes and was extremely ill. They wanted to amputate his legs, and he refused. So they said he didn't have a long time to live. And I ended up going to Northwestern. I'd rather go to, you know, and I still felt like I was very uh, blessed to be able to go to Northwestern. When uh, I was being raised in that home, Dottie was being raised in Arkansas in the home of a Southern Baptist pastor. Her father pastored 67 years in the pulpit, 67 years. He only quit because he couldn't read anymore. His eyes had gotten too bad, and that's when he retired. Preached until he was 92, died at 95. He was just a man of God. He's the one that led me to Jesus, and he's my hero. Always, always will be my hero. But Daddy had a, a stepsister that was uh, pretty wild in high school, and uh, her, father, her mother had passed away. And when her father remarried, he married someone that had this girl that was the same age. 
as Dottie. And so they went through school all together as almost like twins. And she embarrassed Dottie so badly that by the time they graduated from high school, all of Dottie's family had gone to Washita Baptist for college. And uh, Helen said she wanted to go to Washita Baptist. And those of you that know my story, Helen is one of the strongest Christians that you'll ever find now. But God used that situation because when Helen said she wanted to go to Washita, Dottie did not want to go where her mother went, where her sister was going to school. So she said, I want to go where mama went to school. And of course, that was Northwestern. We met there. And it's a long, long involved story. But eventually, I got saved. We got married. When we got married, God blessed us tremendously. We, we did have some sadness. We buried three children. Uh, and then we started adopting, and God has blessed us. We've adopted nine children. But as we were suffering through all of these years of losing our children to heart disease, uh, God still blessed us, and we were able to get an education, be able to do things, and came back to Pinecrest, where I had worked while I was working on my master's degree. After I got my doctorate, we came back to Pinecrest, and I was working at Pinecrest. And I was director of education with the, the retarded children up there. We had almost 3,000 children, and we had also 3,400, I think, on the waiting list. I was part of the team that uh, was on the... Uh, entrance, you know, for kids to come to Pinecrest. It was, it's a government school. <clears throat> and John McKeithen, who was governor at that time, called me one day and said, I have a grandson of a very rich supporter of John McKeithen. And he said, I want you to find him a bed. He, his son, you know, the, the child was born severely mentally retarded. And I want you to put him in that bed, find a bed. And that meant I had to jump 3,000 other people who were waiting to put their children in the institution. And it aggravated me because he was rich enough, the guy was rich enough to put the child anywhere. But I did it because the governor was my boss. Four or five months later, he called me again, the same type of thing, and to make a long story short, over the next 18 months, he called me six times to put a rich child in a bed at Pinecrest. And by the time they got to the fifth time, I was so angry at not being able to stand up to the governor, I guess, and feeling guilty for jumping people that were waiting all those years to put their child in an institution, that I went across to our hospital there at Pinecrest. And our hospital on, on the grounds had 600 people in it. One group was ambulatory, but they were severely, severely mentally retarded. They could never live in a group situation. There was another room where we had cribs, and the cribs were this long. They weren't any longer than this because these were children that would never grow. And some of them were 35 years old and etc. but they would never get any bigger than this. They were just little vegetables. We had 300 cribs in that room. And so I walked into the room that first day and I was so angry. And I went to a bed and I took a child out of the bed and I put him on the, on the carpet. And I did that with about seven kids, put them on the carpet and then I laid down on the carpet in the middle of them. And I let them just lick on me and kiss on me and crawl all over me and everything else. And, and it just relieved my stress. But then a couple of months later, John called and he said, Mike, I have twin girls. Find two beds. Same sex, same problem, etc." And I was just, I was at the end really. I, you know, and, and now I realize that it was God pushing me in, in the right direction. 
But I hung up the phone, and I, instead of going to find two beds, I went over to the hospital. I was so mad, I was spitting nails almost. And I walked into the hospital, and I went to the bed to take out a child. And when I got there, I looked up, and in the back of the room was a big hospital bed, an adult hospital bed in there with all of those cribs. And being such a godly man, I knew now I could get mad at somebody. I was going to scream at a, at a poor janitor. So a nurse came by, and I started on the nurse. I said, you go find the janitor. That bed's not supposed to be here. And I was just totally ugly and ungodly. And she waited for me to calm down, and then she said, Dr. Clark, before I go back there, before I go get the janitor, please go back there. So I was started towards the bed, and as I approached the bed, in the bed, and you know how big, how large a hospital bed is, an adult hospital bed, how wide the mattress is, in the bed was a child. And that child's head was larger than the width of the mattress. His head was about this large, and his body was only about this long. He had a little bitty face, no eyes, they'd burned away. Of course, he was deaf and he was mute, you know, and couldn't move his body at all, but he could move his little arms and his little legs. And by the time I reached to where he was, you know, of course, all the anger was gone. And I just walked up to him and I put my hand on his chest like this. And when I did, he grabbed me like a, almost like a little snake. He just grabbed me. And it was like he was riding a miniature bronco. He just cut loose. His little legs were doing like this. They weren't much bigger than a Barbie. His little legs started just flying everywhere and his little arms were doing like this. And, and he had... His eyes were solid white. Everything had burned away over the years. And as I looked into those solid white orbs, it was as though his eyes were dancing. And as I was looking at the child, God spoke to me and said, Mike, I have made all things beautiful in their time. And my natural mind said to myself, God, if someone walked in here that had never seen a hydrophilic child in this condition, to this extent, it would be ugly to them. But before I could totally get that thought out, the Lord spoke again and said, Mike, he's happier than you are. And I knew it was true. I knew it was God and I knew it was true. So I played with him for a little while and then I leaned over and I kissed him on that little bitty cheek. And then I went to my office and I laid on the floor in my office. And I, had, I was spread eagle like this, flat on my face. And I started here and I said, God, I thank you that I can move my thumbs. And I thank you, Lord, that I can wiggle my fingers. And I am so grateful, Lord, that I can grasp. And that I have joints in my wrist, in my elbows, in my shoulder, in my ankles, in my knees, in my hips. I went through everything that I could think of. I was always angry that God didn't make me 6'2 and 190 pounds. And I said to God, God, I am so grateful that you made me in your image, just like you wanted me to be. And I'm so grateful, Father, for the salvation that I have in Jesus Christ. 
I got up from the floor about an hour later and went over to the office because I had not signed the entrance for that child to come. And so I went to the office to find out what had gone, how that child got there, who he was. And when I walked into the office, the people in the office had already heard about me over there putting my hand on that child's chest and me kissing him and, and all of that. Word had already got back to the office. So when I walked in, the woman that was in charge of the office said, Mike, I don't know how he got here. That was her first words to me. I don't know how he got here. But last night about midnight, an ambulance drove up here from Wisconsin. And this child was in that ambulance. He's 19 years old. And he's been in this condition all of his life in a bed in Wisconsin. Now, we didn't have anybody from out of state. So I knew something was going on that was not normal. So I left the office and I went back over to the hospital and I put my hand on his chest again and he grabbed it again and we played the same thing for a little while and then I kissed him. Every day I would go in there and exactly 30 days to the day that I kissed him the first time, he passed away. Dottie and I were the only two that that buried him. We buried him there at Pinecrest and, you know, at Pauper's Grave for children that are unwanted by their parents. And we had a grave digger, of course, so the grave digger and the two of us were there. As I got ready, you know, to put him in the ground, I knelt down next to his coffin and I kissed the little coffin. And I said to him, this is the first time that you can hear me. And this is the first time that you can see me. But I want you to know, the day that I die and I see Jesus, that's what I want more than anything else is to see Jesus. But after I do that, I want to find you. And I want to tell you that you have changed my life forever. And that everything that happens in my life from this day until the day I die, I ask that Jesus Christ would put on your account for what you have done to me, for what you have done to me, for me actually. I want you to understand something. Sometimes the biggest disappointments in our life turn out to be the biggest blessings in our lives. If I would have gone to Tennessee, I never would have met Dottie. If Dottie would have gone to Washita, we never would have got married. If the deaths of our children had never occurred, we never would have been seeking deeper as to what God wanted us to do with our lives. If I never would have met that little boy, I'd still be working in mental retardation somewhere in the state of Louisiana. But because of circumstances that look so bad, alcoholic family, death of my brothers, and all the things I mentioned, look what God has done. Daddy. 1989, we took this picture. And over the years, God manifested himself in ways that we never never would have believed. We were 45 years old. We thought, you know, at our old age of 45, and with the money that we had, if we could go to Guatemala and take care of 20 children, that would be quite an accomplishment. We really would have done something. 
But the Bible says that God sits in the heavens and he laughs. And I'm the one he laughs at more than anything. But you can see what Christ has done over the years. And one day we will see those three children that we buried. And this was our last picture last year, February, a year ago. And this is what God has done. About 4,652 children later. You know, this is what Jesus has done. Daddy and I are getting ready to go back home this week. This is the tail end of our trip. Normally we're here at the beginning. Um, but this is the tail end, and we've gotten 11 little boys since we left. So the number is actually 63, 4663. But isn't God good? You see, and the majority of those children have gotten saved. The majority of them have gotten an education. The majority of them, you know, are, are making a difference in Guatemala today. And it all began because my father had diabetes. And isn't that something, how God can take something that you think at the time is horrible and then turn it to where he is glorified. You only have one responsibility in this life, and that's to glorify God. God has given you life. God has given you health. God has given you wisdom. And God wants every Christian to glorify Him. That's why we exist. We don't exist for anything else except to glorify God. And we glorify God by being obedient to what God calls us to do individually and personally. And you don't have to go to Guatemala. But God expects you to be an instrument of His work in this world. That you are a witness, that you are a, a light, that you are a person that is ready with the answer for a world that is absolutely, totally out of control. Daddy, this is Henesis. Many of you remember the story of Henesis. She's the little girl that needed a kidney transplant. And because of her and the successful kidney transplant, we got five more kids that needed kidneys and they all passed away. But I'm going to show you what God has done since then. Henesis here is speaking before Congress in Guatemala. So they called me. They asked me to come and bring Henesis to speak to Congress. They were honoring the surgeon that did her transplant. And he was given the option as to which child he would have speak on his behalf. They didn't want an adult to speak on his behalf. They wanted a child. And so they invited Dr. Lou. Uh, invited Henesis to speak. And as I was snapping this picture, I couldn't do it from the front because you couldn't see her. She looked like this behind that pulpit. And uh, so as I was getting ready to snap the picture, here's the words that she spoke. Now you have to remember, this is Congress. Congress. And she stands before them and her very first words are, I want to give all of the glory and the honor to Jesus Christ for saving me and for giving Dr. Lou the wisdom to be able to give me the new kidney. Three weeks later, the president of Guatemala came on, on national television and he made this comment. Last night, 
I gave my life to Jesus Christ. He didn't say there was a connection. He did not say that there was a connection. But I know that him hearing the words of Henesis coming from a child of how important her relationship with God was, even more than her physical life, touched his heart in a way that no one else could have ever touched his heart. But here's what God has done, because we did bury five children that had dialysis done. We had it done in the hospitals, of course, and it just seemed like within 10 to 12, 13 months, they would pass away. They would get these infections, and they would pass away. So we asked the Lord to provide us with the machines so that we could do dialysis at our home. These are the same five kids, Dottie. Uh, they were being Skyped a few, about five weeks ago. There's a rotary club in Fayetteville, Arkansas that wants to help us with our dialysis unit. And I want you to look at how healthy those five children look and how their smiles, and they're like that all the time. You know, and these are all children that have a sentence of death. They're not, there's, without a miracle from God, they're not going to live another 18 months or so. But they have far outlived the other children just tremendously. They've outlived them already by months and months. And one of the reasons is because we asked the Lord to give us machines, dialysis units, so that we could do dialysis at home. And they wouldn't be going to the hospital where uh, they were getting these infections from all of the things that go on. You go to a third world hospital in a city as large as Guatemala City, you get there at four o'clock in the morning and there's already a line of over 200 people waiting to get into the hospital. So you wait for hours and hours just to get into the hospital. And then you're around, of course, all these people that are so sick and these children were getting infections in their catheters. And that's what was killing them. So now we're able to do, go on dot, this is dialysis at home. And this is Cindy on, on the left and Wendy on the right. And you see the little white machine uh, behind Wendy's back. And she's holding a white, little white tube. The white tube is connected to a very clear tube. But it's long enough for her to walk away from the dialysis machine, you know, to about the seventh row. So she can go to the bathroom, she can do her homework, they can all eat together. All five children have this type of machine. They cost $35,000 a piece. So when I had to get five of those things, it was $175,000. And I went to Baxter, the owners, you know, the people that produce those machines, and they told me the price, and I asked them how we could work that out because these children were critical and I needed to get them on dialysis immediately, you know. And uh, so they said that they told me they would get back with their financer and they'd figure out what the payments would be and all that kind of stuff. And then they called me back a few days later and they said, we want to give you the machines. So they gave us the machines and the only, the only condition is we have to buy all of the, you know, the bags and the, the liquids and all the stuff from them, which we're very happy to do. And uh, we've had trouble with the machines and they change them out. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have, you know, we don't have to pay that kind of stuff either. You know, we don't have any kind of contract with them and, and et cetera. 
but this is Wendy is the one on the right and Cindy is the one on the left. The girl behind Cindy, you see over her shoulder, is one of our college students. That's Marilyn. And Marilyn, uh, we have college girls that live in the dorm with one of our men, one of our boys, Aroldo, who is an RN, and he takes care of all the dialysis things. But each girl has a, a college girl that lives with her. And they do the cooking for him and they do the homework with him and they, she's doing her hair before she goes to school in the morning and etc. And so they have this bond and that to us is, is another saving factor is that they have this tremendous love of Christ manifested through this older girl so that in, in turn, uh, you know, when, when you're happy and you feel loved and you feel wanted, that goes a long way to, to health. It goes a mighty long way to health. And so with the love of our older kids that live with them, they, they receive that love from God. They receive that, that peace of God in their lives. And go on. This is uh, Jose and, and Cindy again. But I want you to be able to see how small the machines are. And we put them on those machines at night. Uh, we put them on about 6.30 at night. We take them off about six in the morning, so they, they're on dialysis 12 hours, but they're only on dialysis one time a day, and that's all night. Therefore, they can be on a soccer team, and they do, believe it or not, with catheters. Uh, they still play soccer, and they ride bicycles, and they have a normal life. They're able to go to school all day and not have to leave to, to go to the city, you know, eight or nine hours in order to have their dialysis done. So God has tremendously manifested his love towards them. But Dr. Lou, whom Donnie and I work with, uh, has 204 children that need dialysis. And so we're asking God to, you know, to just keep performing miracles concerning our home. And Dottie, this is our dialysis home. And now this is the addition to our dialysis home. Show them one more, Dottie. There you see how big. That's the addition. We're going to be able to take five more children. Dottie and I go home Thursday. Within a week after that, we will be getting our first child, a girl, little girl named Karen, uh, who is also 11 years old. And then after that, we have a boy and then another girl. And then we have three other girls that are in line to come to our home, you know, once we can get everything prepared for them. So God has opened the door for us to be able to, to uh, express his love to them and to help them to cope. All of these children are thrown away. They're just thrown. They're just, once their parents find out they're sick, they just drive to another part of the country, put them out of the bus, and walk away. And so these kids are not only sick, they're unwanted and they're unloved. But when they come to our home, and then these these other children love them, then their entire lives and their outlook on life totally changes. And those those smiles were not fake. That's how they are. They know their condition. But one of the things God told me, you remember about the little boy that died was when I went to pray for him, God said, Mike, don't let him die in a hospital by himself and without knowing me. And we have had five die. All five died in someone's arms. And all five died born again. And the five children that you see up there are all saved. They're all born again. So their lives in eternity are already set. And there is no kidney disease in eternity. 
But they're not going to die by themselves in a hospital. They will die in my arms. They will die in daddy's arms. Or they will die in one of these children's arms. But they will not die without feeling the love of God as the last thing they feel upon this earth. The last one that died was Sergio. When Sergio died, he said, uh, I I was holding him in the hospital. I was holding him across my lap in his bed. And I I was looking at him and I said, son, I want to make sure that you know, you know, just tell me about Jesus. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And he laughed at me and he said, daddy, I'm going up. I'm going up. Now, this child died a couple hours after he tells me this. So, you know, think about that. He says, I'm going up. And when I go up, I'm going to see Anthony, the little one that died. He said, and then I'm going to wait for you because you're so old. <laughs> so even right up to the end, you know, he had this, this joy in his life. He knew the pain was about to stop forever. He knew the dialysis was going to stop. He knew that he was going to be in a place where he would never hurt again. He would never feel that pain again. Go on, Dottie. This is Dr. Lou with the little girl that's coming, Karen. Dottie, last year when I was here, I told you that I'd gotten a phone call I did not understand. And it was from Dr. Don Hines, who had been the president of the Louisiana State Senate. And he was also a physician. And that he had called me and asked me to go meet him in Bunky whenever we came back to the state. So Dottie and I did. And as we got to his home in Bunky, he said, please get in my car. And he drove us to New Orleans. And he took us to LSU Medical School in New Orleans, downtown New Orleans. And when we walked into the medical school, I had no idea why we were there. He walked into the chancellor's office, did not even knock on the door. He just walked in. And when you're the president of the Senate, I guess you could do that kind of thing. But he walked in there, and when he did, Dr. Uh, Ollier, who is the chancellor at the med school, uh, welcomed Dottie and I and said, we've been waiting for you all this morning. And he brought us into an office, and the head of, of medicine for the state of Louisiana, the head of private hospitals for the state of Louisiana, the head of government hospitals for the state of Louisiana, and about a half a dozen other people that you know I, I can't even remember were in that room. And they said to us, we want to do something for you. Have you ever heard about telemedicine? And I said, no, not really. I don't really know what that is. He said, well, it's a cart. It's a big computer sitting on a cart. And we go into rural areas where there's no physicians or specialists, really. And we're able to put someone on this machine And the disease or the situation, whatever, is diagnosed immediately at LSU Shreveport Med School. And we believe that we can do that from Guatemala. We want to give you one of these machines. And we want to set it up and see if we can do this for you in Guatemala. The cost of the machine and everything is about $105,000. And as soon as we get the money... We're going to give you the machine. Well, two days later, if you notice on the right, it says Telehe. That's actually Telehealth. That's the state of Georgia. The state of Georgia gave us the $105,000 for the machine. They sent five physicians to my home and one technician to teach us how to use the machine. This is the machine, Dot. You see how small it is, 
And the girl that's on the machine is Carmela. Carmela is one of our college students. She's never been able to gain any weight. She's always short of breath. So we had her uh, treated. The machine, uh, she's looking at a physician, a cardiologist in Waycross, Georgia. And the, the cardiologist in Waycross, Georgia studied everything about her via this machine and gave us the diagnosis. Two weeks later, she had open heart surgery. Today, she is absolutely perfectly healed and healthy as she can be. The next picture is Michelle. Michelle is one of the children that came to us severely retarded, hydrocephalic. Dottie and I adopted her because we didn't want anybody to take her away and put her in a home for the retarded. We wanted to keep her. And now she's 20 years old, I guess. And um, she has seizures and things of that nature. And so we have a neurologist at the University of Georgia. You can see his picture in the TV. Uh, He's examining her. This was about uh, eight or nine months ago, eight months ago. And he changed all of her medication, made a rediagnosis on her. And the quality of her life, her personality, everything has changed unbelievably by this machine, by these people doing this. The next picture is a picture of a baby. She's on one of our nurses' laps. She's uh, That's one of the infants that came to us. She came to us with syphilis. Um, so uh, the boy you see in the red shirt is Josue. He was our first child many, many years ago, 25 years ago. And if you look over his shoulder, it's kind of hard to see, I'm sure, but there's a blonde-headed woman in that picture She is a pediatrician, a teaching pediatrician at LSU New Orleans. And every Thursday from one to whatever is necessary, she examines our babies and our children via this machine. So God has opened up an avenue for us that is beyond anything I can believe. One of the things we did was Dr. Hines came to Guatemala and we went to one of the universities in Guatemala, the medical school. And we told them about this machine. The chancellor was so impressed with what he saw. He came out to our home, him and uh, four or five physicians. And they looked at the machine and they figured out that, you know, Guatemala is a rural country. So they're wanting to get machines to be able to put in various sections of Guatemala. And the um, chancellor, who is a Christian, and I got to talking and he is going to try to get a legislation, legislative approval to be able to send, send pediatricians to do their internship at our home so that we will have a practicing pediatrician on staff, you know, constantly uh, for all the children, all the babies, all the little ones that we have. This picture, Dot, is Josue, that number one child, first child. And people ask me, you know, uh, what's going to happen when you leave? What's going to happen when you... And and by the way, leave means die because we will not leave Guatemala. You know, the children already have, have picked a spot to bury me. Uh, they, they, they want it in the dog pen, under the water tower, you know, right next to the dog house. And one day when I was preaching, one teenage boy raised his hand And uh, he said, Daddy, and I thought he wanted to know something about the sermon. He said, Daddy, what do you want us to write on your grave? You know, and so 
Uh, evidently, they'd been talking about that and uh, while I was preaching. So I told him, I, I said, you just put on, on the grave that he's a man of mercy. So I think one of them's already written that up and they're, they're ready to slap it on there. But, uh, but when I leave, uh, God's got a plan. And here's the plan. This is Josue with Dottie. Go on. There's Alex. All of you, you know, Alex was one of the children that uh, Pastor Todd and the youth group started sponsoring, you know, back a long, long time ago. Now he's married. That's his wife next to him. And by the way, she's the sister of Henesis, the the girl that had the kidney transplant and spoke at Congress. And that's their baby. That's actually, they've got a baby younger than that now, but their little girl is next to them. Go on. This is Alex and Gladys. Gladys is sponsored by Phil and Berta uh, ever since the beginning also, and Josue. And you're looking at the future of Casa. You're looking at the, the three. Uh, I, I want to tell you with all of my heart, if I walked away from Casa today, I could hand the keys to these three. I'm serious. They are so compassionate. They are so wise. And they are so dedicated to Christ and so dedicated to what we're doing at Casa. And I could literally walk away from there today, put the hand, the keys in their hands and never look back. That's how much confidence I have in these three. You know, Moses, when he was getting ready to transition to the next life, God had told him over the years, write this in a book as a memorial and rehearse it in the ears of Jose, of, Jose, of, of Joshua. Joshua is Josue. Josue is our, number one, our first child. But no one has heard the word longer than those three. They've been with me for 25 years. So they've heard the word of God from the time that they were this big until now they're, you know, in, they're all 30 years old. Well, Josue's not, but they're all getting there. They've all been there many, many years, and they've heard God's word, and they love Jesus. They love Jesus with all their heart. And so this is what I believe is going to happen to Casa. Go on. Many of you remember the story of our daughter, Candida. Candida is a little girl that was forced to drink the, the uh, Clorox. If you remember that story, that's how our daddy punished her. She ran away from home, walked for weeks until uh, she ended up in a village and was sitting on the ground. She was eight years old crying. And a pastor's wife found her and started talking to her. And she told her her story of the sexual abuse and, and what her daddy had done to her with the Clorox. And the woman led her to Jesus right there on the ground, right there on the, in Villanueva. Brought her home, took care of her for two weeks, got her medical treatment and everything. Brought her to court and then she came to us. And you remember the story that when she was a teenager, 13 years old, uh, we were asking the teenagers, what do you want for Christmas? Write it down, write three things on a sheet of paper. And everybody left and Canada would not write anything down. And I said, you have to write something down. I'm not just going to go pick out something. I want you to get what you want. She said, I don't want a gift. I just want you to adopt me. So Dottie and I adopted her. And because of the damage of the Clorox, they told her that she would never have a baby. And so I showed you the picture last year. That's the baby that she could not have. Uh, that's Deborah, our little Deborah. And she's just as cute as she can be, totally healthy, 
just perfect little girl. But the real story is the husband. The husband is Esdras. Esdras, years ago, I built a church for a pastor, second church we built in Guatemala. And by the way, nearly 150 churches have been built since then because of your love and, and your cooperation and many other people over, across the nation. But a lot of churches have been built. But her, his father was named Timothy. And we built a church for Timothy out in the middle of nowhere, literally. In, I mean, it, the sun didn't shine back in there. It was so deep in the valleys. And they lived with seven children in a room that was probably not any squarer than right here. You know, the two steps, if you squared this up. They had seven children in that room, one room. No electricity, no water, you know, no no facilities, no nothing. And he raised preaching with no salary. They, the, the congregation would give them food. That was their salary. So they had nothing, just absolute poverty. And this man, we built him a little church for his congregation, a concrete church with a concrete floor. And Dottie and I were so moved by the, the goodness of this man of God that we decided, well, we're going to build him a home for his family. You know, put bedrooms in it and, and a roof on it and concrete so they wouldn't be sleeping in dirt. You know, and put a bathroom in there and get electricity out there. And, you know, and so I went to Timothy and I said, Timothy, mom and I want to build you a house. And he said, I don't want you to build me a house. And he offended me. He really did. I'm thinking, gee, here I want to help you. And you're telling me you don't want me to help you. And it offended me at first. I said, what do you mean? You don't want me to build you a house. He said, I don't need a house. I need you to educate my children. And that day, his children climbed into my van. Six, actually five of the, of the seven children climbed into my van. And as I was driving off with all of his kids in the car, he starts screaming. And I thought, yeah, now he's, he's changed his mind. I'll get rid of all these kids. And he runs up to the to the car and he's holding an 18-month-old. And he says, he wants to go too. <laughs> so, so we had six of them. <laughs> but uh, over the years, the older brother graduated from the University of Alabama. I know, that's, I'm sorry. But he, and, and I don't know how, how worthy that degree is, but, but he did graduate. At least it wasn't in Tuscaloosa, it was in Huntsville. Uh, but he graduated, and now he works in a bank in, in Guatemala City, or in Antigua, actually. Ezra's, uh, when he graduated, he went to seminary. And then he pastored a church for three years, an Assembly of God church for three years. He's back on campus now, he in uh, Canada. And they are in charge of our spiritual growth and spiritual development in our school and in our general population. And uh, this man has made a tremendous, tremendous change in so many of our children as he's brought the Word of God into their lives. And this is why I re I realized a long time ago, gringos are, are great. And without you, we couldn't do anything. But when Guatemalans minister to Guatemalans, it's a different thing altogether. You see, when they see the power of God manifested, because they think all the, they think all of us are rich. They think you're wealthy. They think anybody that that can even come down to Guatemala is a millionaire. So they don't see the working of God. They don't see the power of God like we see the power of God. 
But when a Guatemalan is doing that, you know, when they see that being manifested through our children and what God has done, Sarah, who is Alex's wife, when we have a new girl that's been raped come to our home, uh, the first thing we do is not introduce them to mama, to daddy. We introduce them to Sarah. Because one of the things I learned many years ago is our girls that were raped, they feel two things, negative things. They feel, first of all, that God doesn't love them. They feel like they're dirty and they're not, they're not worthy of anything. They feel damaged. And so they, they have this attitude of, you know, can God love me? The other thing is they don't believe a man will ever want to marry them. So when they come to our home and I introduce them to Sarah, who was raped, can say to these girls after she gives them her testimony, I'm saved and God loves me. And I want you to meet Alex, my husband. He loves me. And I want you to meet my children. They love me. And there's a bunch of them. You know, I mean, they, they know how to have kids. They, that hadn't been a problem. All right. So, so this is something that we've learned is that um, as much as they love me, you know, this is the man that is able to put the word of God into him. Uh, in, in a way that I can't. Go on. This is Eddie. Eddie's about to leave our home. I've never told you about Eddie, but Eddie was an abandoned kid many, many years ago and and uh, was a child that struggled so hard. I mean, he, he wanted to be able to do academic stuff, and I mean, he just couldn't do it. He never did ever share with us the abuse that he went through as a child, you know, before he came to our home. And he came to our home young, but he never could really do very well in school. Just barely ever, he could only eat by. When he graduated from high school, finally, he said, I want to try college. And I mean, it was just impossible for him. He just couldn't do it. So he got a job working for Coca-Cola in, in Guatemala. And he was just doing really, really well. Just, he could do it, you know. Uh, he, he was able to do that, making a, a decent living, putting it all in the bank you know, which we make them do. And then he got fired. And it, it's a sad story as to why they fired him. And later they apologized. But uh, another employee accused him of something, you know, of uh, another man accused him. Of, and he was just jealous of Eddie. And so Eddie was just brokenhearted. You remember how I started this? That Dottie and I were both disappointed, and but God turned it to the good. Well, when he got fired... He was, he cried. He cried for about three days. So we just started loving on him and ministering to him and telling him that God surely had something better for him. And he found a job with the Corona paint company. And I want to tell you, he has done like this in the organization in a year and a half. They love him. They absolutely love him. He made so much money in the last 18 months that he put on and he has built his own house. Now it's not a home like y'all have here, but he was able to build his own home. So he's going to be leaving us pretty soon and he's going to leave a huge void in our heart. But this is what God does. This is what your money over the years has done, has given someone that was unloved, unwanted, ignorant in the world's eyes, 
And now he's got a solid job where he's loved, appreciated, has a great future with that organization. And he's, and he's, see, he's not going to suck on us for the rest of his life. He had it in his heart that he was going to build his own home and he was going to make his own life and that God was going to release him. And so he came into my house about a month ago to tell us goodbye right before we left to come to the States. And, and, uh, but that's one of the greatest kids you'll ever meet, Eddie. Go on. This is Minor. Many of you remember the story of Minor, the little retard. They said he was mentally retarded. And uh, he came to our home and he was 18 months old, couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't even sit up. And one of our teenage girls took him and said, can I have him? And we let her have him. And, and just three months later, he was walking and talking. And this is another child that Dottie and I adopted because they told us he was retarded. And we, again, did not want him to go to a home for the retarded. So we adopted him, and that's his high school graduation. And he was number two in his high school class there in Guatemala City. And then the next picture, see, Dottie and I are not proud of him at all. I just wanted you <laughs> to see that, Okay. This is the reason we're here today and not at the beginning of the trip. Many of you remember the story of Estella, the little girl that was raped at age six, continued to be raped until she was eight. And her older brother went in the room and kicked his father in the head when the father was raping her again. And then the father almost killed him, beat him halfway to death. And he ran away during the night and he carried a baby on his hip and took his little sister and his other brother and ran away from home to protect his little sister from the abuse. The baby that was on his hip is that man. And that's Mario. And the story of their lives, the four of them, is phenomenal. The brother that ran away carrying Mario on his hip now has his master's degree. He's just a genius when it comes to business and 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 working. Mario has a tremendous job in Guatemala. And this is his new wife, Mariella. Go on. And there they are cutting the cake. And, and you can tell I eat it. But there's Mario and Mariella on their wedding day. And that was two days before we came home. And that's why we had to delay it because we had to make sure that Estella could come from the States to be at the wedding and, and all of that. The wonder of this family is not just what God has done for the kids. But about four years ago, Estella and her husband and child came to Guatemala to visit us. And the four of them got together, the, and now they're all adults. But the four of them got together and got to talking about what happened and what you know how God had blessed them since all the negative things that had happened as children. They borrowed my car. They drove to a little village called Costa Cuca. You couldn't find it if you wanted to. It's so small and it's actually surrounded by cane fields. You, when the cane's growing, you don't even know there's a town there. Probably doesn't have 40 inhabitants. They drove back to Costa Cuca and they found their father and they led their father to Jesus. The man that raped her for two years, they led him to Jesus. And the girl, Estella, told her daddy that she forgave him because Jesus had forgiven her. 
and all that Satan had stolen from them as a family, God could give back to them in eternity if he would give his life to Jesus Christ. And he fell on his face and he asked Jesus to come into his life. That's the kind of forgiveness that only God can bring into our hearts. That's that, you know, go on. I'm about finished. This is a Stephanie. Stephanie is only 14 years old. When I took this picture, she was 13. And that's her two babies. The one she's holding is the one that had syphilis when she came to us. And she's 13 years old in that picture. The father of her children is her father, her natural father. And when she came, you can see, she's shocked, she's scared. And now she's 14, she's approaching 15. Her kids are healthy. You know, we've got that pediatrician at LSU treating the baby. Everything is fine. She doesn't have syphilis anymore. She's healed. And everything is going well. And she came to me about six weeks ago, and she sat in my lap, and she said, Daddy, I'm a little girl. She said, I'm a little girl. I'm not a mama. I'm a little girl. And my daddy never let me be a little girl. And I want you to let me be a little girl. Can I go live in the dorm with the other girls my age? So we put her babies in with all our other babies there at Casa. And she moved into the dorm. And I want to tell you, she is enjoying the life of a little girl. She is having more fun in school, more fun in just her daily life. And, of course, she goes and sees her babies every day. But she's a little girl. You know, God is in the restoration business. God is in the business of not only salvation, you know, and not only healing, but he's in the restoration business. He can restore a raped child to an ungodly beast of a father because of his love and his power. Because as much as he loved Estella, who was being raped, he loved the father also, who is unworthy of love. But you're looking at someone else that's unworthy of love. I want to, I, do we have anything else, Nani? I think I had a, that's gone. There's just gone. That's uh, our 25th anniversary in Guatemala. It was February the 2nd. And so there's the same crew. You see I'm up there. The same ones presenting Daddy and I with a cake and flowers and a, something else. Go on. But I wanted to thank you. You know, not... Not many people can say that they've had somebody love them for 25 years. Not many people can say that they've had people that are faithful for 25 years. You and I have been together in ministry longer than a lot of marriages last. It's true. You have loved me. You have loved Dottie. You have loved our children. And you have loved the kids in Guatemala. And though a number of you have come to Guatemala, the majority of you have never put your eyes on either, even one child that you have been responsible bringing to Jesus Christ over the years. And when I, when I think of my relationship with you, when Lee died, when Lee Lambry died, just, you know, short time passed, 
I just thought of the three churches that began with us. And Lee was the, you know, he was one of the churches and Brother Singley over in Crowley was the other in family life. And I just think, my God, it just goes by so fast. You know, our lives are truly like a weaver's beam. Where does it go? And I know some of you in here are 15, 16 years old, and you think, oh, I've got a long thing. I don't know where it goes, but I know it goes by. And I wished, I wished that I told Lee that last Sunday, you know, I wish I wish that that's my grandchildren before. <laughs> they make you cry. <laughs> but I wish I I was with Lee in his church last September. And I remember driving off. I remember after lunch leaving them there at the restaurant, kissing them and hugging them and telling he and his wife goodbye. And for twenty five years I've been going there. And he always pulled up to the hotel to take us to supper on Saturday night. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you for loving us. I want to thank you for loving our children. I want to thank you. That little boy said, I'm going up and I'm going to see Anthony. You see, he'd never seen Anthony. He didn't come until after Anthony had died. But he heard the story of Anthony. And he knew that because of that little boy, Anthony, he was in our home getting dialysis. And so I want to thank you with all my heart. I want to thank you. But more than that, I want to spend eternity with you. I want you to know Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that this world flies. I don't know how many friends and family we've buried in the last just five or ten years. But there's a whole lot of seats that are empty in this place right now from people that, you know, were dear to us for many years. And they're gone. They're gone. They're, they're in heaven. There's two things I want to ask you today. Dottie, won't you come down? Two things I want to ask you. Have you been hurt? Alcoholic father? Suicide because of, you know, family situations, divorce. Are, are you resentful because of illness? Are you resentful because of other things in your life? See, Satan wants to keep you from going on. I could have just said, you know, heck, I'll just do what everybody else does. I'll just drink. You know, why did God let that happen? But you make a choice with your life. There's probably women in here have been raped, sexually abused. There's, I know there's people in here that have suffered. Have you let the suffering destroy your ministry? Have you just kept that feeling in your heart? Or have you? do you have the love of God so deeply in your heart that you could go to someone that's hurt you? Our Father died for us. Jesus died so that we could spend eternity with him. If you're not a child of God, then Brother Todd is here and, you know, 
I want you to go there for salvation if you want salvation. But if you have a hurt and you want to let go of that sucker so that you can go on and be all that God wants you to be, then Donnie and I are here for that. We'll pray with you for that. Okay?